0: Get in the action, on the Action Addicts Podcast, no greater faction, than the action movie scene. Get in the action, on the Action Addicts Podcast, your satisfaction, action all the Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to today's show. You're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast, and I'm your host, Scott Wiley. Today, we're going to be talking about the story of Ricky O. Oh. This Hong Kong classic is one that has a huge cult following, and uh, I even reference it later on as saying that this film actually has a bit of a legend around it. It's one film that I've been tracking For a very long time. You know, it's one of those films that you always hear people talk about. It's one of those films that, for a very long time, was what people were talking about in message forums, you know, many years ago, that lots of people seemed to talk about, but no one seemed to actually have a copy of. So, I had never actually seen this film before recording this episode. I watched it for the first time, specifically, so I could do an episode on it. And today, we have the amazing Headshot Exposure a.k.a. Alex, coming on to talk about it. If you know me, then there's a very good chance you know him. He is a film critic. He is a action film enthusiast. He runs fantastic Twitter threads about films and about the breakdown of how action is shot and edited, choreographed. And his work is unfathomable. It is just truly impressive, and I'm so privileged and happy that he agreed to come on the show and he was very enthusiastic and he likes the show and that just meant the world to me given that at the time this was recorded the show had only just started going out and uh, that first episode got a lot of positive feedback so yeah it, it meant a lot to me to have somebody of this pedigree come on because as I even say in the episode he was one of the future guests that I was really hoping that we could have because i absolutely love listening to him when he's on other podcasts but the fact that he was just so happy and eager to come on and just be part of the fun and be part of the action just yeah made my day at the time so i'm not going to give too much more of a breakdown because we we go on for a while and this one guys um didn't really realize how long we went on until i edited it so this is a long one strap yourself in and uh hope you have fun uh, we also go on a really, really nice mm, conversation about piracy versus preservation, which is something that I'm very passionate about, and I think you guys are going to enjoy that when it happens, but for now, I'm going to throw it over to myself and to Alex to let you guys enjoy our breakdown and our conversations about the story of Ricky and all things in between and surrounding it and around it, because honestly... If you want to know about the director, if you want to know about the actor, if you want to know what we thought of the effects, the sets, the reactions to the overall implications of the story, you're going to get it in this one, guys. All right, thank you very much to myself for giving me that amazing introduction. I'm sure it was one of the best ones I've ever done. But we're back today on the Action Addicts podcast, and today I am joined with a very special guest. I suspect he needs no introduction, and I also suspect that any introduction I could give him wouldn't stand up to the merits that the rest of you would attribute it to him. So I'm not even going to try. I'm going to throw it over to him. Introduce yourself, my new friend.
1: (laughs) Hello, uh, my name is Alex. You might know me from Twitter as head exposure or uh, one perfect headshot and I also have a small YouTube channel uh, that's the the name is Ken Emotions. so yeah I'm mostly on Twitter talking action movies and sharing whatever cool stuff I find you know thanks for the invite. That's quite all right I would
0: to be honest I was thrilled that you were here um I'll be honest I followed your stuff. Pretty much since i became part of action twitter obviously i've liked action films for longer than that and action twitter is a weird thing that just kind of popped into existence one day um and people have been fluidly joining it but when i started following your account it's it's such a big breakdown of stuff and that's the only way i can describe it in a general broad sense that it was just an instant oh yeah i want notifications for this and then um i heard you on uh atkins undisputed i believe and Correct. I, yep. I really liked that particular episode that you were on and after, obviously following your twitter account anyway i was like this guy is probably like a professional critic or something so when uh when i was starting to put together g- guests for this particular show you were in the back of my mind but i thought you're probably going to be uh off in the distance somewhere because it's, it's going to take me a while to build up a, a nice little depth of episodes that i can use to be like hey come on this podcast we, we actually have people listen to it but two things happen that surprised me number one people are listening to it um and we haven't really got that far into it so thank you people listening but secondly uh turns out we have a mutual friend so shout out to shafi because he basically yelled at me and said no get alex on your show now <laughs> thanks shafi thank you So uh, I did, I reached out, and it turned out that the film in question was perfect because the film we're going to be talking about today is The Story of Ricky, or Ricky O. And I have never seen this film before, so I had a real interesting experience. Oh, that was your first
1: watch, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never seen this before. Oh, you're a changed man. I am.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Scott has been born again. (laughs) <laughs> Do you want to know what's even funnier is this film came out the same year I was born. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> kind of was. <laughs> well, I say that I got conflicting reports of what year this film came out. When I first looked, it said 1991, but then I saw somewhere else say 1992. So I'm kind of mixed on that one. But I'm going with 91 because then it matches me.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's 92. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I god think that's, damn it um i'm sorry that's what the hong kong movie database seems to indicate yeah 92.
0: ah uh, to be fair i thought i'll consult the back of the box and the back of the blu-ray box does also say 1992 so i don't know where i got 91 from i've got uh,
1: yeah so i think wikipedia says 91. yeah um,
0: i think it sure. says 91 online which is irritating yeah, yeah. oh well I, I I can't say that I'm as old as this film. Then I am old, I am older than. But this. I mean,
1: it, it's. I think it's fine. Like, I'm pretty sure they were sh- maybe shooting it or writing it in ninety one. So look.
0: <laughs> ah ah ah. So the internet movie database says it came out in nineteen ninety one. That's what was confusing me because I was looking at it for some of the casting and I saw ninety one and I was like, oh sweet. But it lies to me. In fact, it lies to me even more. It actually says release date, April 9th, 1992. So why does it say 1991 at the top of the page?
1: (laughs) So, yeah, the IMDB tends to be um, a bit wrong sometimes when it comes to Asian titles, (sighs) Asian movie information, unfortunately.
0: Well, there you go. That's one bombshell for the show, and we haven't even started yet. (sighs)
1: So, anyway... what I was going to ask was yeah, no yeah I have to ask you a question what oh, God, how man. did you how did you feel when the movie ended uh, uh confused <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like i'm not sure what i just watched but i've got pleasurable <laughs> feelings i think i enjoyed it <laughs> but i tell you what all the way through the film the my main brainwave thought was I don't know well actually I do know if this came out in 92 then I do know but when I thought it came out in 91 I was thinking that this is the best Street Fighter adaptation that isn't actually a Street Fighter adaptation I've ever seen because they get so much of some of that right and I was like wow this is eerily similar to Street Fighter (laughs) I should point out I'm talking about the game, not the Sonny Chiba
1: film. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It also gets compared a lot to Fist of the North Star.
0: Yes. See, I did think that as well, but there was a lot of moments where I felt like they were channeling Chi or Ki, depending on what part you're from. And I, again, back then, I think it probably did have more in common with Fist of the North Star, but the way that they've changed the lore of Ken and Ryu and uh, Goken and Goki, I think that that really fit the whole Street Fighter Shoto esque story that they've now kind of grafted onto the, that particular group of characters, and especially when you've got uh, Ricky literally glowing with his aura, it's like ah, uh, if he threw a Hadoken in a minute, it would not have surprised me. I mean, he does pretty much do a Shoryuken at pretty much anything that moves. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> yeah. you're right, Fist of the North Star. I could definitely see that easily fitting as well. So what I was what I was originally going to say was when I said to, to, to Shafi that I was going to watch this film and I wanted to do this one as an episode, because I've heard about this film and I've just never been able to get a hold of it. So the fact that 88 Films put out this Blu-ray was like, sweet. I can actually finally get a hold of it easily without having to troll the depths of eBay and my local secondhand retailers. So he was the one that then basically said, you must get Alex on the show because this is like one of his favorite films ever. And I think he knows this film off by heart in his sleep. And I was like, Oh, I've never seen it. So that was a perfect idea for me because you're going to tell me a bunch of stuff. I don't know. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Don't know if I'm that knowledgeable, but uh, yeah. So uh, your turn. What, what was your reaction the first
1: time you watched it? And when did you first watch it? Right. Okay. So, um, in the, in the late 2000s, a, a friend of mine went to a film festival where he saw Story of Ricky. Ah. I wasn't there. So then, like, we talked afterwards and he was like, dude, you must watch this film. It's like, okay, I've never heard of it. Okay, I'll I'll look for it. And early 2000s, I had to look a bit hard to find it. Um, So, you know, if it's like maybe like maybe 12 13 years ago um and like there was no blu-ray of it, and they were like the the like dvd copies were all out of print and like basically the only way to to find it was to you know go the bootleg way um so eventually i did get my hands on on one of those and yeah and watch it and Look at the time. I hadn't seen Peter Jackson's *Brain Dead*, uh, so at the time, I think it was the goriest, the goriest film I'd ever seen. And I was like, I had no idea people did that. Like, I had no idea if filmmakers. <laughs> I had no idea if filmmakers could go this far. Like, and yeah, I was really. Like, it was hypnotic. Uh, you know, it was it was at the time when I was discovering that uh, i loved movies you know so i was trying to watch as many movies as possible of every genre every era every country uh but i didn't have a huge like um knowledge of movies so like seeing that at that time in my cinephilic journey was an epiphany uh because it you know made me realize okay those hong kong dudes hmm. I need to dig deeper in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's what happened. And um, before before there were Blu rays um, and before there was the internet for, um, like, you know, to get like a pirated copy of films in France, the only big that, that's where I'm from, I'm from France. And in France, the only way to get a hold of that film back then before like the the torrent sites was basically you had to go to paris and to go to the chinese neighborhood of paris and to go to a chinese shop selling chinese products from hong kong to other chinese immigrants um that was the only way to find this this kind of products and i've read up on it a bit and i know that uh cinephiles French chenophiles were aware of that film be, through those, like through those beans, and it remained like a obscure cult movie for years and years and years before the late 2000s, or until the late 2000s, when a new generation of festival programmers and like video labels starting to think, okay, this movie is a, a new life, like we need to put it out again.
0: Nice. That is a journey. It's actually kind of interesting because i'm trying to think if i've said this before on the podcast or not because i know if i did it would have been on one of the episodes where mike was on um listeners will have already heard those two episodes but at the time of recording only one of those episodes is out and i cannot for the life of me remember if i'm gonna repeat myself but i'm gonna say it anyway i being from england had a different experience with hong kong films because until 1997 Hong Kong was part of us. So Hong Kong films weren't hard to find because <laughs> they yeah, were yeah. shown on television. Um, they were easy to find in stores on VHS, obviously. And I still have some of those VHS's, uh, Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars, Jet Lee's The Enforcer and a few others have survived. They're not covered in mold. They still exist. They don't look anywhere near as good. Uh, cause they're, they, they look like they were made in MS paint on their front covers, but they're originals. You know, they're, they're worth something to me. And um I'd never heard of this film back then, because like you say, I don't think it was one of the ones that was going to get around. Um, I think it very much was a film that no one really knew what to do with, especially with the high levels of gore, which I loved, by the way. So yeah, the first time I heard of this film, well, it was in the mid 2000s, late 2000s. And again, it wasn't like I knew about the film. It was more, I heard other people who like martial art films reference this film. And I was like, I have no clue what you're talking about. And then, yeah, the legend of Riccio. never mind the story of Riccio, but the legend yeah. of Riccio was almost uh, bigger, in my opinion, than the film itself. It's like, oh, it's this it's this amazing film. that's like really hard to get a hold of, but it's so brutal and glory. It's like, oh, my God, that, that sounds amazing. How do I get it? Oh, you can't. It's like not in print anywhere. Damn it. <laughs> um, so uh, does that mean then that the, the copy you originally watched had no subtitles?
1: No, it had English subtitles, yeah. Ah, very nice. I don't know. Maybe there were fan subs. I'm not sure. It's, it's so long ago now. I don't know. But they were English subtitles, yeah.
0: Yeah, because I know that there is a big contingent of people that will watch these sorts of films, even if they don't have subtitles. Um, And that, that's fine. Like, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I've never been able to do that. Um, I can watch some fight sequences. No, Yeah, that's fine. But I like to know what's going on even if what's going on is completely crazy and that's why films uh (laughs) as people listening will also know uh i did writing wrongs and that episode has also yet to come out and the subtitles for that drove me absolutely mental uh because the the localization and the translation of those subtitles are infuriating it's like i almost wish i had just watched it without subtitles
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah you get that with hong kong movies there yeah
0: Hmm. well sometimes
1: sometimes it can be funny as well but oh yeah yeah no it it does you know it does distract from the from the storyline sometimes yeah (laughs) yeah
0: like you say it depends on the film like writing wrongs has a pretty interesting story in my opinion so the fact that the subtitles were bad really detracted but other films you just think nah, it's comedy i'm mostly just here to watch the fights i don't care but I can't really sit here and complain about the subtitles for any of these films when Sapolong 2 on Amazon has some of the most amateurish uh, typing on their subtitles I've ever seen, and it's on Amazon Prime. It's legit official subtitles, and they are terrible. It's not even that they've mistranslated or got the localization wrong. They're typos. There's spaces where there shouldn't be spaces. It's god awful. And there's just comment after comment of people complaining about it, and they just don't do anything.
1: It's, it's mad. I oh, yeah, they don't care. But, you know, the problem is that people who make the subtitles probably had like a day, maybe two, to do it and were paid like the shit money to do it, you know, like almost nothing. So, like, <laughs> look, if I'm going to spend two. Two days of work doing that, and you're paying me fifty dollars. Then you're gonna keep your typos, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um. So like, but I yeah, it's because some distributors do not want to pay for it; they don't care. You know, some will go as far as using Google Translate. Like, yeah. Like, wow. That's yeah, yeah. that's
0: th- Thank you for that depressing thought of the day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the subtitle was on the eighty-eight firms. Release of Ricky o are really good.
0: <laughs> yes, they are. I must admit, that was easily one of my highlights of this film was I was genuinely happy to see how good the subtitles were. It makes me hope that other as of yet unreleased stuff will find their way out on these these sorts of releases. If nothing else, it will give us better subtitles. <laughs> so yeah, man. So um my first
1: you... Oh, go on. Yeah, I know. Did you want to like give a, a quick Plot, synopsis, like of what's going on in the movie? <laughs> oh,
0: my God. I mean, I can try. Um, I In fact, so for those who can't see our, our lovely conversation, I have just picked up the Blu-ray box, but I don't think that's going to help me because it has too many words. But um, trying to summarize the plot of this film is either really easy or really hard. Um, The one thing that I did want to say is that obviously it's based on a Japanese manga. Obviously, I didn't know that. I've never seen it, I've never read it and I do like my manga so that does actually surprise me that I've never come across it but then when I saw the age of the manga like especially at the end credits I thought ah that's why I've never seen it uh, it's a bit uh, out, out of my the range of uh, stuff I usually read but um yeah basically a guy's in prison because he killed someone and uh people try and fuck with him and it doesn't go too well for them
1: <laughs> I think there's one. I think there's one important detail is that um, it's like in the future, and all prisons are like private Privatized. companies, basically. Uh, yeah. So they are uh, they are run. They're not run by the government. They're run by private people, and they do whatever they want in the prisons. See that part made me laugh because uh, for two reasons. The first one is that
0: in the futuristic year of 2001, which uh, was quite a while ago, um, yeah. but also. When I, when I read that, because it comes up with this big block of text to explain the setting of the film, and I'm like, I had to sort of do a reset in my brain. I'm like, oh, right, the concept of privatized prisons would have been weird when this film was made. But yeah. uh, private prisons, where anything goes, is uh, pretty normal, depending on what country you live in. Just got to do it. I found that very weird.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but in the mindset of the filmmakers and the manga artists at the time, it was like... Private prisons, bad because bad wardens.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would say not in execution, but in terms of, um, plan and idea, they weren't entirely wrong. <laughs> I think yeah. it's, I mean, the film has a very anti authoritarian message, which I really liked. Uh, I thought it was hilarious in some places, but yeah, that opening bit was kind of like, Oh no, I don't want another invasion USA because. Man, when me and Rob talked about Invasion of USA, we spent so much of that just basically going, this used to be fantasy. Now it feels like I'm watching a documentary of what not it was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, uh, go, go forth and ask your questions. I can
1: sense that they're brewing in your mind. <laughs> My questions. Are, are you familiar with uh, the director, Alumni Choi? Have you seen any of his other films? I will be honest. Uh, I have no idea uh, okay. because, like I said, I
0: deliberately didn't do uh, any research. I don't think I've seen any of his other
1: films. So, so like, basically, the story of Ricky is his second to last film uh, officially, and he quit filmmaking uh, shortly after. Um, like, it's hard to know why, but uh, the story of Ricky was a huge bomb. Like, it didn't make any money. Uh, right at the cinema so it gained a cult following uh in on the on video format but at the cinema it made zero money at all like it lost a lot of money so because as you said people didn't know what to do with it and didn't know what to think of it uh it was it was so over the top the violence was so over the top that like it just seemed like an like an oddity like a bizarre piece of filmmaking Um. I really like the film i think i've seen it five times including like my rewatch for the podcast um and yeah i've never read the manga but what's really like st- uh, what was striking for me the first time i saw it and is still striking for me now is that it's really a perfect example of how hong kong uh the hong kong film industry approached commercial films and entertainment like in this film narration is less important than attractions and like you know like uh, the less important than doing the wildest possible shit on screen to get the audience hooked on it and to get the audience entertained and like you know to keep delivering again and again on silliness or violence or anything that's entertaining basically um so like the film just is it's just like one scene after the after another of gruesome executions, like grotesque fights, and it ends you know with like a monster even. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, we we'll get back to the final scene later, but uh like it's if you go into the film not knowing that it's gonna be a gory film the first like the first gory scene in the showers uh, can actually be quite surprising like uh, yes yes so, it was yeah. <laughs> so there's a guy whose face is half peeled off mm-hmm. by a sharp toy and then another guy falls headfirst into like a nail right uh, like a yeah it's a it's a, it's a
0: bed of nails like on the end of yeah. a piece of wood And he falls head first and he puts his hand out and the nail goes straight through his hands and into his eyes um because i I actually made a bit of a note because i was like the entrance is amazing because it just completely shocks you into like whoa what just happened but then i made a little note of i i literally wrote what i thought as i was watching it and i've i've written entrance is amazing exclamation mark the dummy they used to fall onto the spikes not so much, but great scene regardless
1: <laughs> I mean I think the, the dummy is obviously very obvious and it's not the last dummy we're gonna see in the film no. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of dummies in this film and they they do not leave the sets in one piece No <laughs> but uh it work, I think it works pretty well because it adds to the like show Real, what the fuck was that you know moment feeling yeah of the moments you know it's like oh okay it's that kind of film yeah so and if you're on board with this scene then you're on board for the rest of the film
0: if i if i'm remembering correctly the order as well this is after uh the prisoners are introduced and lick fong comes in and they do the x-ray uh because they find that he keeps setting off the metal detector because he's got the bullets in his chest so that is kind of like a what and then obviously it cuts and he's been in the prison and then you get this sequence and you're like, Oh, okay. I'm in for a film where just anything can happen. Any, anything's going to go at this point. I'm, I'm on board now. I understand. Take the seatbelt off. I need airbags. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also really like that shot because I think for the time it was made for the budget that they had, I think they realized that the gory stuff was going to be really difficult to bring to life because I'm assuming it's in the manga and considering that i still recognized instantly it was a dummy and as you said it's it's not hidden in any way shape or form however they cut to it and they literally just show you that shot of the dummy landing on the spikes the blood pours out and then before your brain has had a chance to process it it cuts back to the other guy and Bearing in mind that they wouldn't have been watching it in high definition, it would have been on a TV probably two thirds smaller than the one that I watched it on, at least. I have no doubt that that was way more impressive to see on an old fashioned film projector screen that or on a small television back in the day of the big bubble screens uh, than it probably is now. And I bet that worked. I'll I'll bet money that that looks good if you see it in its original degraded uh, condition <laughs> back when films were gritty and you had to stare at them through a magnifying glass to get those details. But, you know uh, that's
1: that's a great observation because I think most of the films made in Hong Kong back then they never thought someone one day will watch this in ultra high definition on a sixty-five inch screen. You know exactly. They never thought this would happen. Nope. So like yeah
0: yeah. <laughs> so uh. I so th- this will
1: this will loop back to Ricky
0: in just a second. So when I was growing up I watched uh Doctor Who being in England and having a dad who was also into sci-fi. Now some of those older series do not have great special effects. They make them work though. And one of the ways that they make them work is they understood the aspect ratio of the television that they were going to broadcast in and when they were in black and white they understood the best way to get the right angles of the camera to make the reflections of what would be broadcast in black and white come across as shadows and how to use the lighting. When when you first turn on Ricky O, it's, well, it's obvious to me anyway, I know not everybody is probably looking for it, but that opening shot of the prison is quite clearly a model diorama, similar to how Doctor Who did a lot of its stuff. And I feel like, as you said, when you're a filmmaker in the 90s, and in the case of the Doctor Who ones, it's exactly the same, You're not thinking how to future-proof your work for the next generation. You're thinking, how do I get the best-looking product right now that's going to make me some money? And also, what's going to look good on what we currently have? Because they have no way of predicting what the future holds. I mean, without being mean, especially in Hong Kong, who were not exactly using what was cutting-edge technology at the time anyway. So I 100% think that it's the way that they solve some of these problems When you watch them now, brand new, if you've never seen these sorts of films before, you'll probably laugh at it and you'll probably be shocked by it, but you'll probably laugh at it too. But you've got to remember when it was made, smaller TV, worse budget, filmmaking techniques from the cameras that they were using, the old cameras, these weren't digital, these would have been analog, so they've got to think about how much film they're burning. And they still managed to get the timing right in the editing to just show you enough without it becoming super obvious that what you're looking at wasn't the actor actually falling on spikes. And then they still had great makeup effects for the next scene where he stands up and he's got the spikes around in his face. It's real easy to laugh at th- this stuff now when we rewatch them, but I actually think for the time it was made, their creativity is just amazing.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Actually, um, I think when it comes to Hong Kong movies, uh, Lam Nai Choi was through the director was uh he made a bunch of movies before that were film after film he really honed his craft and like got better and better at making special effects movies um so like it started back you know in 86 or so and he so like quickly like um so can i go quick like um a quick like um off-topic? Bio of uh, Lamb. Oh, yeah, Did go you, for it. Yeah. Um, so so, so, so like...
0: before you start, I actually went and looked him up while you were talking to see if I had seen any of his other films. And yeah. uh, no, I haven't. But I, they're all films that I have heard of and have tried to find previously. And again, they're not the easiest things to find. Some of them, um, I know that like The Seventh Curse, I have seen that. But i don't remember it um (laughs) i know i've seen it because i remember seeing the old dvd that i had somewhere you
1: need to see it again then because it's as memorable
0: as ricky well that's that's the problem um i had a bunch of those sorts of films back in the day and they've just they 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 weren't mine they were my granddad's so they're in his house
1: somewhere okay so like so 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 family name lamb first name nitro so uh, Lam, he um, he started in the industry when he was fifteen, and then he worked at Shaw Brothers for a long time, and he worked as a cinematographer, and um, like he he worked on like a bunch of uh, you know Shaw Brothers films, kung fu films, and uh, in the early eighties, like after being told by people like Sammo Hung and Chow Hark, okay. Like, they were like, man, you need you need to direct your own movies. Like, you're you're excellent with the camera. You need to, like, you know, take a leap of faith and, like, make your own film. But he only did when the actor, Danny Lee, asked him to, to co-direct a movie with him. So that happened in 81. And then he started making his own films. So he made three films at Shaw Brothers. Uh, Brothers from the Wall City, Men from the Gutter, and Three Stooges Go on the cover. And the first two are really, like, gritty realistic, down-to-earth, grounded like crime thrillers. Like uh, they're very dark, like very they have a social aspect to them, like they're very, you know, socially aware of the, the difficulties of the Hong Kong people at the time. Uh, and then when Shaw Brothers like basically closed down, they closed down the studio and they stopped producing movies, he went over to Golden Harvest. And then that's where he started making special effects movies. Uh, so he started with the Ghost Natures and the Seventh Curse. And on both, he worked with the famous Wong Jing, who is like a very famous uh, producer, director, writer, actor yeah. from Hong Kong who's made like hundreds of films. Um, and so in Ghost Natures and the Seventh Curse, you had like skeletons doing kung fu, like flying monsters, you know, lots of crazy, crazy stuff that you you hadn't really seen before uh in the hong kong industry and then he went on to make uh two adaptations of another manga and they were called the peacock king and the saga of the phoenix and on those films on those films he collaborated with uh japanese special effects uh, experts and they were um so i don't know if you know them but their names were Keita Amenia and, sorry, I have to read, uh, Kazutsugu Kozuki. And those two guys, they worked on stuff such as Kamen Rider and like the the Goro um, franchise, you know, this kind of stuff. Yeah, and, no, I,
0: I, I, I recognize the name uh, yeah. straight away for the Kamen Rider and for the Goro. I didn't know, I, I couldn't tell you, what else they've done I just know oh yeah I know those I know those names
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so so I think he learned a lot from them on those two films and he took what he learned and then went on to make his last two official films story of Ricky and the Cat." so both around 91 92 and then he vanished from filmmaking um so like when he gets to story of Ricky He's acquired enough enough know-how, enough skills to like really know what's gonna work and how to make it, you know, just exciting and crazy for the audience on screen.
0: So, so I'm sorry, sorry.
1: I, I was only laughing then because from the way
0: you said it, then my brain went. So what you're saying is he has acquired a lot of skills over a very long career. <laughs>
1: yes <laughs> I, I suddenly i had liam neeson in my head for some reason so <laughs> so you i had a particular set of skills yeah. found this manga <laughs> and adapted the shit out of it <laughs> yeah uh that should
0: be the resume of every
1: director uh, going forward here are my skills <laughs> uh. so look in the story of ricky you get people getting punched in the face and their head explodes from the punch you get people getting their guts out of their belly and using their guts to strangle other people you get people exploding you get people being crushed you get i don't know you get any sort of stuff stuff that you've never seen in any kind of movies other movies before and on top of that you get a killer killer cast so like the main the main actor his name was uh, Fan Su Hong Wong, and um, he was extremely young. I think he was 18 at the time. Yeah. And So, uh,
0: so just before you carry on, I just wanted to
1: say yeah.
0: his face irritated me to no end because... I did it. The, no, no, no. Not as in his face irritated me. But the second I saw him, my brain went, you know this guy. And I was sat there going, but I, I do know this guy. And then it drove me mad to the point I eventually, after about 10 minutes had to pause it and look it up and the second i saw him older i was like you're in it man <laughs> and of course he is in it man he played Jin, and he's obviously he's been in a bunch of other stuff but i have seen him in so many things and i was like okay i've never seen him this young that's why my brain could not make that connection like you say he is super young in this film
1: <laughs> yeah he's extremely young and. Um- like uh, he's he's kind of had like like the the fate of this film kind of sealed his own fate as an actor as well, because like he's the first time as a leading man, and I think they thought we're going to make him a star, you know. Um, yeah,
0: I mean to be honest, I I thought he gave a great performance. I I was kind of sad when I did then look through the rest of his filmography to see that the leading
1: roles just didn't really. F- go to him, because I thought he was great. Yeah, no, I agree he is, but like the... because the film bombed so hard, basically his career as a little man was over before it started. So like he, of course, he he made more films after that. Uh, And just last year he was in a a pretty cool direct-to-video Chinese action movie. Uh, One more shot. But... um. Yeah, he never found fame after after Ricky Ricky O, unfortunately. Um, I think he's like I think he he's a big part of why the film works. Like to me the feeling that I have with this film is that um, there are moments where the filmmakers uh, use kind of a target-cheek approach, but for for the most like for the most part uh they treat it as a, a serious story like yeah they don't they don't they don't cheapen it with like cynicism or uh or like misplaced humor um and when when, when it needs to be you know when it needs to be like straightforward and kind of uh, sort of serious then that's what it is um so like i think his performance plays a big part in it because He has this, like, kind of, you know, young Boy Scout kind of face where you're like, Are you sure this man can do no wrong? You know, he's like, Yeah, he's almost a little boy, you know, (laughs) and then he starts tearing people apart. So it's like, uh, Okay. (laughs) So I don't know, compared to other over the top violent films, uh, I don't get the feeling that. they don't believe in the story being told.
0: Yeah, I'm with you No, I, I completely agree um especially to your point about the humor not being uh, what's the word I want to use uh, <laughs> before I, I I drop myself in hot water is, with is, the and
1: the cuts uh, the the rest of the, the yeah film, right? that's yeah. that's
0: what I was gonna say is it, well the thing is is it's not even the same type of humor like for example, I've got a whole shelf that is just Jackie, Sammo, Yun films. And as much as I will always love their films, with every year that passes, the comedy sections of their films become somewhat more uh, teeth grinding to get through. Uh, Not all of them, but, but certainly some of them. And the fact that this film was made in Hong Kong in the early 90s, and it has none of that, was so refreshing to the point that I didn't even pick up on it until you just mentioned it to me. None of that is in there. It It is just allowed to be a serious film that's about criminals in prison and the, a private prison and about the shit that goes on behind the walls. The difference is, if you will, is that the guy in question just happens to be able to punch people out of existence. Um, <laughs> 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 Otherwise, the film takes itself very seriously. And then it's like the more you peel away the layers the more you're like hang on what none of this makes any sense but (laughs) in the beginning you're like oh yeah this is this is this is going to be a serious film no (laughs) (laughs) and um the other thing that made me chuckle which again i know wasn't intentional because it didn't exist yet is all i could think whenever fan took his shirt off and you could see he was just shirtless with the black trousers i know obviously at the time it would have been oh he looks like He's trying to be a Bruce Lee, which I didn't actually get from him. But what I was thinking was, why wasn't this guy cast as Liu Kang in the Mortal Kombat film? Because, come on, he's like the spitting image of what they wanted from him. And he'd already done a film
1: with really gory fatalities. Yeah, yeah. Chances are, nobody had seen it. Oh, well, yeah, true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I think he was contractually obligated to take his shirt off very frequently. In this in this film, I think it was in his contract. I watched I rewatched the film with the audio commentary from Frank Cheng, who from the New York from the New York Asian Film Festival. Um, and he was saying in the commentary that uh Fan Su Young was obligated to take his shirt off very often.
0: That's quite amusing.
1: Yeah, I, I um I, I am very much
0: looking forward to, to listening to the audio commentary for this film. I was actually tempted to try and do it. And then when I opened up the special features for those who don't own this, there's like five different audio commentaries. I was like, well, that's five rewatches of the film I don't have time for. <laughs>
1: well, that's that's a bit much, uh, but you can never go wrong with Frank Zhang. He, he has good insight on the films. What's what's funny about the cast is that the uh, assistant warden, the actor, is uh, his father. He's the father of the main actor.
0: I, I wow okay yeah. I
1: did not know that yeah, yeah, I'd, have, I'd, have,
0: I'd have never have guessed that
1: <laughs> yeah so like so the assistant warden is one of the very few people in the film or very few villains in the film that li Wong does not kill yes he's killed by the by another character but uh Li Wong like Ricky does not kill him uh so it might be the reason why. I don't know he didn't want to kill his father on the screen on screen. not <laughs> <laughs> Oh but, man, um, that's so weird. Like they look nothing alike no, I know, in the I film. Know, I know. Ah that's just blowing my mind. But that's that's a great character, isn't he? The the assistant warden. So he has oh, his office, yeah. and in his half in his office, yeah, he has a shelf between him full of like porn films from from Asia, and he has a glass eye and a uh, a hook for a hand.
0: Yes, I um, I I, I mean, we're ju- ju- I <laughs> that whole sequence of his introduction was just hysterical because a there is so much porn in that office that I'm like, Jesus, man, do you get any work done in a day? But also, his Jesus, office more than I have. Yeah, his office is huge. It's like three times the size of the entire apartment I live in, but there's nothing in it. It's got so much dead space. I was like, I can't make up my mind if that was a deliberate thing or if that was just a case of the set designers were like, oh, look at all this space we have. Let's just use it. We can move <laughs> the camera around. Yeah, exactly. Um, Cause it's funny. Cause I, I'm just looking back at my notes and, um, I found it funny because obviously all of that stuff was great. But also before that, we have the the one of the characters, because like I was saying, with the heaviness balancing out with the weirdness, the the guy from the shower scene committed suicide. And that completely like didn't take me by surprise as such. But the seriousness with which they treated it, I was like, hang on. We just had a guy get attacked by a toy train and had half of his face cut off. Then we had all the stuff we've already talked about. Then they gave us this really tragic, like backstory of what's going on, setting up the assistant warden for his introduction that we were just talking about. And then this guy hangs himself and they treat it dead serious. And then we get the warden with this bright orange demonic glass eye, a hook for a hand surrounded by porn. And I'm like, I can see why people
1: might not have known what to make of this film. <laughs> but like it's it's like it's like okay, those characters live in a world with grotesque, grotesque people, grotesque events. Yes. But they live in it. Like it, you know, their actions still have consequences, you know?
0: Yeah, because I mean I think one of the The moment for me when I knew that I was going to really like Ricky was the fact that when that guy dies and he obviously sees the body being carried out, not only does he get annoyed that they've handcuffed the body, like why? And I was with him on that, but also he's fixed the toy train. And like he was, even though he's this ridiculously OP, powerful killing machine, his, like you said, instincts is to always be nice and he is still the Boy Scout that he very much looks like and uh, the fact that they then go from that to him basically blowing up Mad Dog's insides out from his stomach and then being taken to the water, it's like I i I know, I've heard of tone shifts and I've heard of juxtaposition but this is like if you had a pair of scales with a pair of scales on each side of the scales
1: Yeah, Hong Kong movies are known for tonal shifts like this. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, even if, even in the more mainstream ones like Police Story, you'll have like Jackie Chan fooling around with the telephones, you know, in like a a silent movie kind of comedy bit, and the next scene he's hanging, you know, from a bus and like almost risking his his life for a stunt. So, so I think once you've seen like a couple of Hong Kong movies, you're like not as um surprised by it anymore no no i i wasn't necessarily surprised by it it was more the
0: fact of the what you were saying about the fact that the film bombed i can see why it might have because although people are used to the tone shifts combine that with the gore and the weird um not weird humor but the the weird tone of like you say all of this porn all of the explosions all of the people and then just suddenly throw in all these heavy tones i thought it was great but i can totally see why it didn't connect with people in the 90s it probably was to be frank a bit ahead of its time in in all honesty i think people's tastes weren't quite there yet
1: yeah yeah so we haven't mentioned it yet but um, that film is what was called a category three film in hong kong so in hong kong you had like uh, three categories of film one two and three one was for general audiences two was like for like from teenage years on and three was adults only and so story of ricky is look i don't know if it's the only one but it's at least one of the only category three films i've seen with no female nudity uh usually there is and this one was category three solely because of the the amount of violence yeah Um, usually it's because there are topless women in in the category category three films but not here um and category three basically started around uh 88 and then some films that were from before 88 were retroactively classified as category three but it was a massive like massive industry and those are the films that uh started to have cult followings in the west because they're you know, so over the top and like cross some boundaries that we wouldn't cross in other countries. (laughs) Um, And and they are the movies that, you know, a lot of people are afraid might get heavily censored or altogether disappear in the coming years because of the new rules imposed by uh, China over the Hong Kong film industry um so like films like this as silly as it may sound to some people um was problematic because a lot of them were problematic a lot of them were not politically correct um they're you know in danger of being butchered or being taken away from circulation um you know in the near future yeah so we've already i mean we haven't seen it happen per se, but for example, uh, if I'm, I'm going a bit off rails here, but uh, I think it's important. Um, so, for example, the you know PTU from Jolito. Mm-hmm. So so Jolito made those movies, Net PTU, and then he produced five uh, sequels, and all of them were recently put out on Blu-ray in France by Spectrum Films. And I was working with the guy from Spectrum Films and I was working on the subtitles for one of the movies and we talk about it. He's like, how long is your file? So we, we compare the files and we realized that the file he's been given by the Hong Kong uh, provider was 10 minutes shorter than um, the DVD from the 90s. So we're like, ah. oh okay so he had the dvd from the 90s so he, he compared and he found out that 10 minutes were cut um by the new century, because of the new censorship law uh because it was referencing religion and because it was referencing like uh there were themes of peace and stuff like this between you know uh like countries that don't see eye to eye with china um yeah So long story short, he took the scenes that were cut off and restored them and inserted the scenes in the new, like, master. So he put out the whole film, uh, uncut. Um, But that's an example of the stuff that's happening at the moment in Hong Kong with Hong Kong films. So the category three films that we're talking about now, I think, are at a high risk of being, you know, prone to being heavily cut in the future so that wasn't the case here with wikio uh i don't think it was the case with robotrix that 88 films also put out at the same time on blu-ray
0: yeah i i have that one too
1: yeah (laughs) but like any you know you know any future release of a category three film or any hong kong film really you know i'd be looking out for that type of stuff Um, no
0: it's a good point um Uh, So Mike and I have had this discussion a few times. Um, I'm sure eventually my full unedited thoughts will find their way onto here. I've actually been toying with the idea of having a few bonus episodes that aren't about films that are about these sort of topics. And the one that comes up again and again, and I see so many people walk away with the wrong take with this or, or aren't listening, is piracy versus preservation because as you've just said it will become eventually impossible to get the original versions of these films from the ways in which you will be able to purchase them because say for example in the future they do edit ricky o the second thing they'll do is ask companies to stop selling the version that's not edited And then they'll put out a new version. And then for a whole generation of people, that will be the only version that exists. And a lot of people will be like, oh, that wouldn't happen. And A, it will. And B, there's already an example of it. And it wasn't even, it's not from China. It's from America. It's called Star Wars. Because you can only buy the edited versions of those original films. The original films are gone. Unless you happen to have those original VHSs, there's no way you can get them. And they no matter who owns them, they refuse to make... The originals available for the people that would rather watch them. And I personally know the struggle of trying to get a hold of these out of print films from ridiculously overinflated prices, if you can even find them in the first place. And then you have to try and figure out if it will even play in your region. DVDs aren't so bad because I have a computer and computers can play them from any region as long as you have the the like something like VLC player, which is open source software, so it's fine. But Blu-rays are not. And 4K, yeah, that's not going to have the sort of stuff you're looking for unless the boutique label uh, gets it. So then that leaves you with bootlegs, grey market, or torrenting, which obviously a lot of people will immediately start screaming piracy. But is it piracy if that is the only way that you can actually see the full original unedited version of this film that nobody is selling. No one's losing money in this transaction. If the film doesn't exist in this version, you're not losing out. There is nobody who owns the copyrights or the IP that is going to, well, they will have an issue with it, but they're not losing out. And this is the thing that I see so many people get annoyed about when they say, oh, people, you know, piracy is wrong, end of. Yes, it is. But that's not what we're talking about. I have, sitting over there, four Hong Kong Rescue Blu-rays. They're all films that I could not buy anywhere else when I bought them. One (laughs) now exists as an 88 Films, and that's Armor of God. And guess what? I now have the 88 Films Armor of God. So now I've got it twice. And I don't care, because it came out for real. So of course I'm going to buy the official release. But the other three? Nope. I... I guarantee you they're never coming out because for whatever reason, they're just, they just don't seem to have an interest in bringing certain films back out and they will just get lost to time. So preserve them, preserve them by any means necessary. People do it and have done it for a very long time. And it's only really in the last sort of 10 to 15 years that the mindset has changed from where it was in the eighties, the nineties and two thousands, where, I grew up in a world where you just popped a VHS into a machine. And if I wanted to record something that was on the television, you just hit record and no one thought anything of it. And companies used to encourage this. This wasn't like it was something that they knew existed, but ignored. There was an active, big marketing push to, you know, record your own stuff off the television and record your, the films that are on channel five or whatever. And now that would be interpreted as the same as pirating a film well is it you know it's like i'm not expecting an answer to this for anybody listening or from you but it's the sort of thing where i think people are too quick to make snap judgments on this sort of stuff because once their master is edited with there's nothing that can be done you know and it's like that scares me because yeah these are silly films where people blow up and maybe there's some half-naked women but it won't stay just those films especially not
1: in the country we're talking about. So, like, I agree with you, but I think it's it's important to emphasise that um, most fans, most people who are hunting those films down on bootleg, when a video label finally puts out an official release, most of those fans, like you did, like I did, bought Armour of God from 88 Films. I used to have, actually, I still have a Blu-ray of Drunken Master 2 uh, from the company you mentioned, because there was no other Blu-ray of Drunken Master 2 aside from the butchered one from the Weinstein, from Miramax. So now Warner Archive finally put out a Blu-ray last year of Drunken Master 2. Zero, like zero extra features, nothing like the the film, the bear film with subtitles that's it nothing else so like they didn't even work on it but they put it out official release about it i think it's important to highlight that um basically the people who watch those movies they don't want, they don't go for bootleg because they want to pay less they go for bootleg because it's the only way to watch the movies that they want to watch and when those movies come out officially the vast majority of them are going to purchase it. Um, so like, it's always like, yeah. So like, just don't torrent the last Marvel movie. Just, just don't do that. No. Uh, yeah. Don't go at the cinema, wait for it on Disney plus, whatever. Just, just don't torrent it. It's, it's fine. But if you're looking like for a movie that's been out of print for 20 years, <laughs> how else are you going to see it? Um, exactly. I mean, you don't have to see it. Of course, you don't have to do anything. But um, if you want to see it, then it's the only way. Um, or sometimes you go on eBay and you can find a copy for three hundred dollars. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that's the choice there, if if you can call that a choice. Um, but yeah, it's even more important now that censorship laws are coming into effect. Um, there's a wealth, there's a wealth of films there that. And it's already the case, like, we only know the tip of the iceberg. Like, I spend hours and hours every week exploring, like, the world of obscure movies, especially action movies, but also horror movies, also sci-fi movies. Um, And every week, every single week, I discover a new film I never heard about before. And lo and behold, it's not out on Brouillet. There's an out-of-print DVD that's been out-of-print for 15, 10, 15 years. There's a huge amount of films. Even with all of them, even with all the massive and good work that companies like Eureka, 88 Films, or Arrow Films, even Criterion, um, even with their work, that still leaves thousands and thousands of films that, that might just disappear one day if it were not for you know, what we were talking about before, like preservation, as you yeah. said. Um, well, that's the so, thing as yeah. well. Is, but like, um, I, I, when, it Riccio, when it comes to Rikyo, when it comes to Rikyo, buy the freaking Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we both, we literally are both holding up our copies
0: and the chat that we're having right now. Because the one thing I did want to say is, uh, you mentioned the prices of these things. And A, I don't think that any of the, the gray market discs that I've ever acquired in my life have been cheaper than regular Blu-ray prices. So I promise you people listening, no one in the film community buys them because they are looking for a bargain. They are almost always more expensive because they're harder to produce.
1: <laughs> so what you were saying about Hong Kong, uh, what's that? Oh, Rescue. Yeah. Um, so... So the, their most like successful titles are obviously hard boiled and probably the killer. Um, so the the thing with that is that there are people who want to like to release those films on Blu-ray. Like I know for a fact, video labels want to do it, but the 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 rights are split up between different companies from different countries, um, and. Until they they manage to reach an agreement, nothing's going to happen. And Warner, Warner Brothers, they own shit tons of Hong Kong films, like a ton of them. For example, The Blade by Troy Hawk, it's at Warner Brothers, and they don't care. couldn't give less of a shit about this film. Well, sorry for all the swearing, by the way. Um, I don't know if (laughs) you can swear. I've been swearing. It's fine, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, it's not so much that no one wants to put them out. It's that the people who do, unfortunately, cannot get the rights holders to agree yes um oh that's,
0: that's splitting the, the let, let's of... be honest it's always what it comes down to is the rights holders or a producer somewhere wants more money than people can afford to give um i'm gonna re- reference an example that i'm sure you're familiar with that has nothing to do with hong kong or china and that's a tiny independent film called broken path it stars mm-hmm. johnny young bush and daniel southworth it has a edited complete copy that is out in the wild if you look on youtube all of its fight scenes rack up millions of views so many people want to own that film and i know for a fact that the only reason that labels that want to bring it out on blu-ray um because some of them literally were talking to me about this on twitter two weeks ago uh can't because they cannot find who owns the rights and i know shouting out the action drunkies podcast here uh, that the reason is is because broken path is shall we say owned by a difficult producer who basically has told Johnny Bosch that he will never allow it to be released purely out of spite there's there's he he owns it there's no arguing with him but everybody wants it the stars of it want it. all the other people who made the film would like it to be released but he's like nah and that's it. That's the end of the sentence. He he owns it, therefore, no one can do anything about it. And that's yeah. infuriating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, story of Ricky O, Warden's Office. If you've listened to this show by this point, you already know that this we go off topic almost every episode. So you should be used to it by now, but I think that was a fun conversation that everybody's going to enjoy and I've no doubt that people are going to argue with us
1: <laughs> what did you think of uh what do you think of the action from Ricky o? because it has quite a different style of action than a typical martial arts movie
0: yeah um just so before I answer that question, I was just gonna say like um we were talking about the warden. And one thing that I really liked in that scene is because they've already shown that Ricky is basically uh, able to kill anything that gets in his way. I really liked the fact that they showed that the assistant warden was not a pushover. Um, obviously he was supported by his guards, but I love the fact that when he punched Ricky, that Ricky actually was bruised and bleeding and it, he wasn't superhuman. Like, yes, he can put out, damage and he can endure it but he's not superman he's not not feeling the pain and he isn't having consequences for being punched in the face or having claws dug into his hand yes he seems to heal very quickly but i think they kind of address that with the fact that he's training in his you know with his key um but to answer your question the fights was interesting um if we're looking at them as a whole i really enjoyed it in the beginning, I was kind of like, this feels a bit too rigid. Um, I could, I could see the choreography a bit too much and the, the performers were going a little bit too slow for me. However, that was really only the first fight. And then after that, it was like, they all kind of found their rhythm and the special effects as well being woven into the fights, uh, really worked for me. Um, especially the fights he has with the, uh, uh, the gang leaders, you know, the four winds, whatever they were called. I really like those fights. Uh, I i won't jump ahead and start breaking them down, but it worked for me. Um, I've always liked when Kung Fu films lean into the mystical elements. I'm not a big fan of the wire Fu films purely because I've yet to see old films do the wire work in a way that I don't just sort of go... uh Whereas newer newer films, the wire the wire rigging has gotten better, and I think they 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 can do it now. But some of the older films, I I vastly prefer it when they don't try and use wire work to float around because they go too slow.
1: <laughs> so so, it, like, so, so how, uh, did you see Once Upon a Time in China? Yeah, yeah, I actually have the Blu Ray box set over there from Eureka. Uh, did you did you think there was too much wire work then in that?
0: Mm, no but that one has an unfair advantage because um, Jet Li is, can do no wrong. <laughs> um, I've, they ha- that film is, is automatically going to get more sympathy from me because it's Jet Li doing it. And his performance as an actor, I feel like, can compensate for any weakness. And in fairness, that particular film, I don't think the wire work goes too over the top in the floatiness they tend to use it in a much more snappier way. Maybe it's the editing. I don't know. I'd have to rewatch it to give you a better opinion on that. But in some films, they tend to just sort of float across the screen, and it feels almost like it's in slow motion, but it's not. It's just that they, you know, they're not getting them across the screen fast enough for me.
1: Okay, okay. Like, what's interesting with the, the style of action in *Ricky O* is that in the beginning, it's very one-sided. Yeah, uh, because Ricky just punches through people, so you don't really have time to build a choreography out of that. Uh, it changes a bit later on, especially with Yukari Oshima uh, when she's fighting with uh, Ricky toward the end of the film. Yeah, but in most fights, you don't have that merry that that much back and forth. It's many like one massive punch or one kick or you know stuff like this that being said uh the action director on ricky was philip quark um and philip quark was the action director on Hardboiled, so he kind of knows what he's doing you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> just a bit yeah i mean he was the action director on hardball and like tons of other stuff like uh like, no, some kung fu movies, movies obviously i think he did uh, the bride with white hair from ronnie you oh uh, nice yeah, yeah i really like, like that chi- film chinese ghost story he's worked on like Tiger cage uh so like he knows what he's doing yeah but um and i think what he decided to do for this film works perfectly well for the type of characters you know that we have to deal with in the film and when he has to switch to more back and forth action then it just it just works pretty well so yeah did you do you are you familiar with Yukari yoshima yeah yeah so as as it's always a like so no without knowing it knowing it it was the first film i saw her in but i didn't know her at the time Like i hadn't seen her other films right but um Erika was the first time I I saw her, and it's such a she's she's such a cool character. Like, you know, like, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman. I think it's supposed to be a man in the film.
0: Yeah, see that that yeah. threw me for a loop as well, and I was sort of like, well, I'm sure that I'm sure that is who I think it is, and obviously it, it was, and I'm going, but I'm sure the film is is supposed to be making me think it's a guy, but yeah i'm not entirely sure on that myself
1: yeah it's it shows like that of all the fighters all the fighters in the film you can see when you see her presence on screen that she's the one that can that knows how to move the best oh yeah 100 she's the best you can see she's the best martial artist of the bunch um, so toward the end, before the, the monster scene, uh, she 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 fights Ricky and you have a good bit of back and forth between between the two of them.
0: Well, she um, she she probably fights him the most out of any character because they have yeah. three from memory distinct sequences. They have the first confrontation where she deals the most damage when the other three are all introduced they have a second confrontation when he sets the poppy fields on fire and then obviously she fights him at the very very end
1: yeah in the fire scene the the it's like the takes were so long and she had to stand in front of the fire for so long that she very nearly burned her back like the, the, the heat was getting the heat was getting so so much that she couldn't stand it anymore and she almost burned her back here
0: <laughs> so the very first time i saw yukari was in Millionaire's Express, and I I love Millionaire's Express with a passion. I I have that on DVD, I have that on VHS, um, and I have the Eureka Blu-ray. And I, I, it's so funny because I've got so many duplicates, and I'm like, I refuse to get rid of them because of how long it took me to find some of these goddamn things. <laughs> but the other thing that made me laugh is, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but she also has another uh, credit to her name, that made me smile because I didn't know it was her until I looked it up. But obviously we were talking about Tokusatsu earlier. Did you know that she's in Chodenshi Bioman? I <laughs> uh, did not. Yes. Did you know? in, uh, in the 1984 to 1985 Super Sentai, she is one of the characters. I'm not sure off the top of my head which one she plays. Um, So I would have to rewatch it. But I'm pretty confident she is one of the recurring characters at the very least. So I find that quite funny. It's like when you start looking people up and you go, "Ah, that's why she seems so familiar. I'd actually known her longer than I've realized.
1: <laughs> the, the action word is a small word actually, yeah, so we find a lot of familiar faces you know over the years. Yeah, she was one of the most uh, like popular on-screen fighter like in the late '80s, early 90s in Hong Kong. She made she made a bunch of like really good films. Like you said, The Millionaire's Express. Iron uh, Angels. Yeah. Um, Burning Ambition was really good. Outlaw Brothers. Uh, but then she made a bunch like after it faded a bit, she went to the Philippines and made like, I don't know. I don't know how many like cheap, 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 cheap movies uh, <laughs> where she basically she was basically the only selling point of the film. Uh, and she made dozens of them. Well, I mean, at least she was still the main character
0: in those films. She wasn't doing a Bruce Willis and just sleepwalking through the cameo appearances.
1: Uh, only Bruce Willis can do a Bruce Willis. Uh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> he's he's mastered the art of not giving a shit and still getting one million <laughs> Yeah, for, for one day's worth of work. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, really nice to see you, Yoshima in this. Sorry, I'm... Um, we- We we're
0: kind of going all over the place with this episode, but to be honest, guys, I mean, as I say, I didn't say, as I'll say in the intro, as I always say in the intro, every film that I talk about, we're going to talk about in great detail. So there's going to be spoilers. So it really doesn't matter whether we talk about the plot or not. The plot is never the main aspect of these sorts of films. Realistically, we're all here because we're action addicts. It's kind of the name of the podcast. We want to talk about the action. We want to talk about the people performing the action. And this particular film is so gory and so good with the effects. Um, we're going to go all over the place. One of the things that I really chuckled at, and I'm going to have to try and remember where exactly it was, is so we were talking about... Um, oh, my brain is not working tonight, sorry. We were talking about Yukari, And uh, I said to you that the film kind of reminded me of Street Fighter. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the characters from Street Fighter, but the sounds that they got her to make, my brain went, oh, it's Vega from Street Fighter. All she's missing is the claw, because she was literally making the exact same sort of sounds, the exact same fighting style. Um, And then as if I didn't love the film enough already, not long after that, Again, I I can't quite remember where it was said, but Ricky says, you know, he's the messenger from hell. And I just creased up into hysterics because the Spider-Man show in Japan that aired, you know, it was a tokusatsu show. The catch line for that character was the emissary of hell. And the way the actor delivers the line in Ricky, I am 99% confident that was a deliberate homage because the delivery of the line was like, that's so, like, how he used to say it.
1: <laughs> nice. Yeah, many connections with Japanese tokusatsu, actually. Mm. Nice. But, like, I, I mean, listeners shouldn't worry too much about the plot of this film. As we've said, it's just Ricky arrives in a private prison and starts, you know, tearing shit up. Uh,
0: yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's like, you know, if Blood and Bone had been about people trying to fuck with Michael J. White instead of what happened afterwards.
1: <laughs> <laughs> excellent recommendation blood and bone yeah oh
0: yes 100% but uh so that I guess takes us into oh yeah that fight what so but we obviously went we skipped ahead straight to uh Yukari's fight but what how did you find the fight with um Ah what was his name? Was it Roaring North or
1: something? The big guy with all the tattoos. In the courtyard. Yeah, with the with with the cross like you know the Christian imagery.
0: Yes,
1: I think it was yeah. the guy on the cross there.
0: Yeah, and, yeah, it was the guy on the cross and you had matey with the knife and the tattoos. Yeah, 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 I yeah. thought that fight was pretty inventive. Um I I just died laughing when um he cut Ricky's artery on his arm, and then Ricky just grabs the veins and starts tying them up like a latex <laughs> glove. Because yeah, bear yeah. in mind, I work in surgeries. I was <laughs> dying because I've seen the inside of someone's arm.
1: Is <laughs> not supposed to be. Is not supposed to be like his tendons or something. Well,
0: I wasn't really sure what it was supposed to be, if I'm honest, because obviously <laughs> it clearly was a spandex rubber glove that he was tying off. But I wasn't sure if it's supposed to be his tendons or his arteries and his veins, because it could have been his tendons, but that makes even less sense. Because if he's tying his tendons up, his arm wouldn't work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's but that's kind of like that's kind of foreshadowing of what's gonna happen later with the guts.
0: Yeah, that is true actually.
1: <laughs> so like once you know once you see this the tendon slash artery scene and you're okay with it then you're okay with what happens after to be honest if
0: you if you if you come into the film and you 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 get that first gory kill and you're not okay with it i don't think there's much point in continuing with the rest of the film i agree yeah because <laughs> by the end of it that sequence is nothing because <laughs> he has i mean there's so much stuff we could be here for hours talking about it so we're not going to but i mean he he literally punches a guy's head half off
1: and that's such a good moment that it's literally the front cover <laughs> it's a great effect it's a great effect It is like the uh special makeup artist on this was Chung Chi Wai and what's crazy about it is that he has almost no other credits to his name oh it's really like, how, how can a guy like make his first film story of Ricky and then after that he makes like two more films and that's it and like what what did he do before? How come he's so good at it in in his first movie? Because as you said, the the scene where he punches half a guy's head off, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's not quite brain dead good, but it's pretty freaking good. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I, w- I can
0: I can think of is perhaps he was the understudy and apprentice of somebody else that was really good. And he went and did this film independently, and then afterwards returned, perhaps, to work with that guy at a company, because um, oh, I know yeah. that does happen. Yeah. You know, where students go off, do a couple of films, and then end up going back to the company they started with.
1: Oh, that's a good. Uh, that's a good theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he really like the special makeup effects really make this film. The uh, you know with like if they hadn't been this good, if they hadn't been so Like, they can be obvious with the dummies, but at the same time, it never takes you out of the film because of the tone of the film. So if they hadn't aligned with the film's tone the way they do, the movie would never work. And like he really makes the film, I think. No, I mean, um, so again,
0: story-wise, later in the film, the warden turns up. And during that point, uh, Ricky fights the really big guy, the one who's from the East or Far East, whatever his name is. And the fight itself is fine. Um, I don't think it's one of the highlights of the film. However, carrying on the theme with the special effects, they end up inside this cage where the thing is coming down to crush them. And the warden and the assistant warden basically don't really care that it's going to also crush one of their guys, Far East. But the scene where they show him getting crushed and him trying to hold it up because he's a really strong dude. The The effects hold up for me for that one. I mean, you literally see his legs bending the wrong way and his head is all crooked and his neck is taking all the pressure. And yet he, it's clearly him. It's not, a, it's not a double. It's not a dummy. It's not um, a, a prosthetic. It's quite clearly him with a lot of makeup. Um, I'm assuming it must have been like a false floor situation. But I, I just thought that, that works for me. Like you say, none of the effects take you out of the film. Um, And the fact that this was made like 30 odd years ago, and there are films today that if they tried to do that same effect, I don't think it would work half as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. So yeah, the the warden. (laughs) Oh my (laughs) God, the warden and his son.
0: Ah, I tell you what, I've never wanted a a kid in a film to die as much as I did that kid. It's
1: the only fucking character who doesn't die.
0: I know. It, it, and I, <laughs> that really depressed me.
1: <laughs> That's the one flaw of the film. They should have killed off that fucking character. <laughs>
0: yeah. See, on the one hand, I, re- well, no, no. I did really like the warden's introduction and I liked the warden's character. Um, I loved the the really fancy regal over-the-top green suit that was clearly everything about him screams elegance, wealth, power. But when he turns up, the assistant warden, who has almost been an intimidating character, but not quite, but he's been the closest thing we've had to one, falls apart because he just turns into essentially the sniveling sidekick of the warden. And that was okay, but it was kind of like, uh, but we've, we, we spent this entire film with this guy and now he's just, nah, he's the comedy relief now. He's not going to get to do anything good again. And I was kind of yeah, like, oh, it,
1: it, it, it makes the war so much more menacing.
0: I think that was the idea, but it, it, it didn't quite work for me because literally, what is it? I want to say 30 seconds after his introduction, he has like a mini heart attack. And he's like, "I need my pills." And I just think the assistant warden's terrified of this guy. But if he just said no and did nothing, the warden would just die on the
1: spot. Game over, and he could take over. You know? <laughs> but then you should ask yourself, why is he so terrified of this guy if he's so weak? There must wow. be a secret. <laughs> there must, yeah, there there must be that. a secret reason to it. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, no, what I will give you that. What could be the reason? You know, actually, that's a good point. I, ne- I just suddenly had that thought of, was he having a heart attack or, or are those pills actually staving off what later happens in the film? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even consider that until just then. <laughs> get me my pills or I'm going to get angry and you yeah. won't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there, um, as we've already said, there's more fights with uh, Yukari and they have another great fight in front of a burning poppy field and it's such a good shot as ricky comes out of this burning burning poppy fields i think that's one of the best shots in the whole film um the cinematography on that particular thing actually stood out to me and i think most people have probably figured out by now i'm not the guy to talk about color palettes color correction cinematography um i like i could talk about framing i could talk about blocking and i could talk about choreography and editing but that sort of stuff doesn't tend to stick out to me that particular shot did and so if it sticks out to me i go with the theory of it must be good because <laughs> i noticed it
1: <laughs> it is it is very good and what's interesting is that this the director of photography on ricky that was his first film oh my so god my, there's a female no, yeah but i'm thinking my theory is land nature the director used to be a director of photography before ah. becoming a director so I'm thinking maybe we owe that shot more to him than to the cinematographer.
0: Yeah, that's a good theory. So, uh, yeah, they have another epic fight. Then some weird stuff happens where they basically decide, well, the warden basically decides that um, if Ricky can survive being buried alive for, what, seven days, was it? That if he's still alive at the end of the seven days, that they'll let him go, and that that was an interesting scene, and we got some flashbacks, which have also been happening throughout the whole film. I should add, but they're they're really not that interesting to talk about without being mean to them.
1: We <laughs> do we do during the flashbacks we do see um Ricky's old master.
0: Yes, um his uh, his his old master made me laugh my ass off because um his name is uh i I wrote it down i know i did oh that's it uncle nice ghost (laughs) and i was just like what (laughs) so
1: um so what's interesting about him is that the actor is actually pretty well known uh he's he's japanese actor who's been in dozens of films over a 50 year career but he was also in one of the james bond movies actually uh, oh well then they did yeah. a very good job um with the
0: the way he was dressed because I, I, normally i recognize faces and his his didn't trigger a memory but if he was in uh james bond if nothing else then i should have recognized him i'm gonna have to look that up now
1: <laughs> i think it was yeah it was you only live twice
0: ah okay yeah yeah i think i know who he was in that case yeah oh huh, that's, yeah. that's that's good to know but uh, But yeah, sorry, yeah. After the flashbacks we get to well, unearth Ricky. I was actually gonna say that there is one other thing about the flashbacks. Um we do see his old master, but we also see his girlfriend. And every single flashback, you see her to some degree and you see the happy life that they have, because the one thing that the film doesn't do it doesn't tell you why Ricky's in prison. It tells you he's there for manslaughter. And it tells you that he's there for, uh, I think it's 10 years. No, 25 years? Oh, I can't remember. It, it, that is that important. But you, they don't actually tell you what he did. Um, They tell you what he's accused of, but that's it. And then these flashbacks, they can feel pretty disconnected from the story you're watching because in the earlier office scene with the assistant warden, he has a picture of Ricky's girlfriend, and he ma- he gives the impression that basically he re- he works out that he can't beat Ricky in a fight, so he threatens her instead. And that gets a reaction. So you don't think anything of it and you don't think anything of these flashbacks. However, towards the end of the film, and as I say, he's buried in cement and then this leads to more fights because he obviously doesn't die. But also we find out in these flashbacks the reason why Ricky is in prison. And that is that his girlfriend wandered into the wrong side of town. And we also find out why Ricky is so dead set against the opium dealing that's going on within the prison because his girlfriend was witnessed a drug deal by people selling heroin and they saw her. So things happened. They kidnapped her and she escaped, unfortunately. And this, this, this bit really like may got a reaction from me while she is trying to escape the drug dem. Somehow she, it's it's both funny and sad somehow she runs straight off the roof because she's i assume so terrified is what they were going with that she failed to notice that where she was running to there was no more floor and she runs straight off the side of the building and just slams the concrete down below and dies and uh he finds the people that did this and um given what we've already said about him as someone that can kill people with one punch, you can imagine how well the people that were responsible for that um, survived their encounter with him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is... It, it does look a bit silly, I have to say, the, uh, the running of the building scene. Um, but, like, I mean... You... <sighs> You could always say, you know, like, she was desperate and she could see no way of escaping and she thought, I might as well just just jump off the building here. Uh, It's my only way out.
0: I I thought Uh, that, but they really do make it look like she just didn't realise because it's it's like she looks away, keeps running, and then it cuts to the shot of the doll hitting the floor. I think it wasn't a conscious choice by her. Maybe it was. Maybe it just didn't come across that well, but it's funny, in one of the
1: of the earlier movies from Lamb Night Choi, they have a similar scene in uh, Brothers from the Wall City where there's a woman falling off a roof. Completely serious scene. Like again, it's a drama, so completely serious scene. And it's, it's yeah, it's, it's filmed much better. Like it's uh the way it's filmed in Brothers from the World City, you can you can feel the fall and you can feel the even if it's a dummy you can feel the dummy hitting first the head and then like the hand bounces off like something and then the the whole body hits the floor and it's actually quite brutal and like when you compare it to the stereo to the ricky scene it's like it must have been it must have been on purpose that they did it like this yeah i don't know because because Lam night show has shown that he can make better scene like it's it's established we know that Uh, and this scene comes off as a bit silly it's like it must have been it must have been on purpose
0: yeah i i don't know man but um that basically gives the motivation and shows that ricky is a good guy and it also gives us the sequence where why does he have bullets in his chest which we we mentioned way back at the start of this and uh the answer is is that he essentially tanked um all seven rounds from a revolver and uh when he got to the guy he then killed him and i gotta say considering that this was the guy he blamed for the death of the love of his life considering how gruesome he makes some of the people die in prison i actually thought he left the guy off pretty easy he just like kills him pretty pretty quick i thought it was going to be like the goriest kill of the film but it it, it wasn't
1: and that that kind of surprised me no, yeah, but you can you can assume that it was his first murder. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that he gets more comfortable with killing people than in the prison.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, folks, this is why I like talking things out, because some of this stuff sounds obvious once you say it out loud, but you have to say it out loud in order to think about it. But uh, yeah, and then we get the final fight, which is just an absolute battle royale because obviously Ricky survives being buried alive and that pisses off the warden. Well, it pisses off everybody, but the prisoners, because by this point, Ricky has basically become a symbol for the prisoners of resistance against the warden. Because prior to this, no one would have dared because he ran everything. They had a huge drug empire, all the guards were in on it, and so were several of the big, terrifying criminals. But Ricky's killed most of them uh all the guards are completely useless against him and everybody you can feel it's a powder keg about to explode and explode it does all of the prisoners basically revolt and have a riot and ricky starts kicking ass taking names and blowing people up like you say fist of the north star street fire more combat take your pick they're really all here um if you like any of those things and you haven't seen this film well a i'll be disappointed that you're listening to this and haven't seen the film but b you should go and watch it um (laughs) And, uh, this leads to the last time that he fights Yakari. It also leads to, uh, as I'm sure you're going to say, the death of the assistant warden, which is probably one of the most anticlimactic bits of the film, though done very well the way he explodes. Yeah. But it also leads to the best part in the whole film for me, which is the warden, uh, who is kind of, like I say, he's not the most intimidating person he's not the most um physically uh, threatening sorry,
1: sorry scott sorry sorry can i just say quickly one quick thing about the last Yukari yoshima fight oh yeah go for it is that is that what's interesting is that you can see in that fight that actually she has the upper hand or or he the character has the upper hand and that ricky only wins because she happens to kick the nitrogen uh yes uh, bottle. Yes, yes, and yes. she freezes and she freezes her own leg. And that's the only way that Ricky actually wins because otherwise it looked like she might have won the fight.
0: That is, being said
1: yeah. though, it whenever they fought, he's
0: already injured, he's just beaten someone mm. else, he's just recovering from something. Like in at, at that point, he's literally had like what, one bowl of rice over a, an eight day period or something ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. The fact that it took that much um, stacking of the cards for Yukari to to you know just about come out on top, I kind of get the impression that what they were basically saying is if they fought on equal terms, it it wouldn't be a fight.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, you have a point. Because
0: it's the same as that guy. Uh, I don't know the actor's name, but the character that has the the strings on the um with the with the knives. Um, I don't he, remember
1: the name yet.
0: No, because he he basically is of uh, no threat whatsoever. He's just the guy in the background that waits for the opportunity to try and stab you. Um, And then if he gets, obviously, one of his hooks into you, then he's a threat. But otherwise, he just kind of chills in the background like, I am biding my time. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he just kind of runs away from memory. <laughs> after after he kills Yukari. he's like, no, I'm good, dude. <laughs> but uh. Yeah, no, sorry. I I thought we talked about that, but no, we hadn't. Yeah, that was a good fight. I I really enjoyed the last fight with Ikari. Like you say, it's probably one of the better better choreographed fights in the whole film. So then, the warden. Yes, the warden. So the warden, uh, uh, he basically challenges Ricky to a fight,
1: which is... He sends sends his son away, unfortunately. We don't see the son die. Oh, yeah. We we didn't really say that the son is actually kind of like a man-child Like, dressed as a schoolboy who has tantrums. Um, Yeah, I
0: wasn't really sure on his age. Um, Because, like you say, he's such a... Well, (laughs) in this film, this sounds really odd to say, but he is such a weird character. Um, They're all weird characters, but he is weirder than the others. Uh, I'm not sure if he is supposed to be a schoolboy or if he's supposed to be older, but... He just plays up to his dad as like this completely useless kid that always needs protecting. But he basically puts people into situations where they need to appease him, do what he says, whatever, or they're going to die. And it, and it really is that black and white. Like he gets a, a prisoner killed right in his introduction because he trips. Well, he doesn't trip. He deliberately falls over and blames the fact that the carpet wasn't laid out right. And so the guards and the assistant warden just literally pick some poor guy that's walking past and they're like, Yeah, this guy did it. And then the warden just kills them. <laughs> no, I think I think he uh he, he, he takes got his, his eye out. out. Yeah, yeah, with the cane. Because yeah, yeah. I because I had that thought of the assistant warden is missing an eye, but he's also missing a hand. And I was like, Is he only missing these things? Because he's aggravated the warden at prior <laughs> points in his life. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Because <laughs> I've I you know it was like He literally, it's the same eye. I think he pokes out on that prisoner as the one the, the assistant warden is missing. But anyway, um, like you say, the kid gets sent away much to our annoyance. And then he challenges him and says, yeah, I'm the warden is, of course, the best man of Kung Fu. And Ricky punches him and he flies across the room and then just casually sits down on what he lands on. And it's like, Oh, that's not happened before. And then yeah, that's he, new. That's new. Yeah, and he just starts laughing and it's like, this isn't good. And then what happens next? Uh, how to describe what happens next? Um, the easiest way would be to say that, uh, you won't like him when he's angry because he hulks out and quite literally turns into the Hulk, but that's too tame. It's more like if it was something from the thing. With all of their creepy, out of place prosthetics mixed with a werewolf transformation from, you know, uh, American Werewolf in London, and if you hodgepodge it together with kung fu trappings, so it looks like a Japanese oni, and then just put it all in a blender and then made sausages oh, out of his arms, it's because that transformation <laughs> sequence is the freakiest thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs>
1: You will not get a better description for me. That was brilliant, Scott. Yeah, (laughs) honestly, I I I rewatched it
0: three times because I was like, "What just happened?" He like stretches his limbs. It gets all of him gets horrifically elongated. His face like it turns into a puppet at one point and like warps itself out and in, and then he balloons out like Arnold and the Hulk, and it's just.
1: It, oh, it's just one of the freakiest things I've ever seen. The end product so like, is pretty creepy too. To, to give an idea, if people have seen big trouble in Little China from John Carpenter, mm-hmm. at the end of the film, there's this character that um inhales so much so much air, he like inflates and, and like he's completely inflated and then he blows up. Like here in Ricky, it's imagine that, except the guy doesn't blow up. And isn't fighting condition, um, so it's like a, a rubber. It's a grotesque rubber. It's, you know what costume. it
0: is. It's a grotesque rubber suit monster straight out of a tokusatsu show. <laughs> it, honestly, that was because in in reality, like got, uh, moving away from the film, I suspect in the manga, um, this character probably looked immensely cool, and I imagine that the point was, is that, because he even says before he transforms that they both study the same martial art. They both know how to manipulate Key. And I suspect, though it does kind of get a little bit lost in the film, that Ricky is the good version of the Key. You know, he's this perfectly toned human body. He has the good aura. He kills people in one punch, although some of it is a bit gruesome. They don't tend to suffer. And then on the other end of the coin, You've got the dark version, which is the warden. He looks completely normal, but when he unleashes his key, it's this horrific, grotesque transformation. But he turns into this massive demon. He's an yeah, absolute his, monster hiding in sheep's clothing. He's Mister Hyde. Yeah, yeah. That that because yeah. that if um if people have seen, I know it's not the best film, but if people have seen the the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen film that came out in uh, I want to say two thousand three with Sean Connery. The Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, in that film, that version of Mr. Hyde is very, very similar to the version that we get of the warden here. But obviously in that film, they used early CGI and some practical effects. This has no CGI, so it's even more freaky. Um, even though, yes, there are some bits where you can, the, the rubber suit doesn't quite work when they're actually fighting. The actual like impact of what the fuck just happened is perfect.
1: So it's not the same actor, actually, in the suit and and the one who plays the warden. So once the warden has transformed, another actor who has another role in the film is in the suit. So it's uh, Lance Uh He's like the, uh, the the rotund guy, the rotund prisoner.
0: Oh, uh, okay.
1: Yeah, so that guy is in the suit in the final fight. Ah, oh, that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah. because he's massive i mean he grows like two feet taller yeah 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 yeah. he's a very like he he's made over 200 movies very well known in hong kong and uh yeah that's him there it's, it's, it's in the beginning of his career ah yeah. so what did you think of the, the the
0: final fight with the warden and obviously i i can tell you agreed with my thoughts on the transformation but what about the actual fight itself
1: it's uh it's a lot of fun because I think for the first time like in the movie we're like okay, Ricky like he could get seriously hurt from from this guy. And as the fight goes on, it's kind of like like he does inflict damage on the warden, but it's hard to imagine like like he goes through him as well. what's what's funny is that he punches through his his torso his last stomach. Uh, but like, it's like, he doesn't even register it. Yeah. It's like, the wall just keeps fighting and it's like, nothing's happened. And at this point, you're like, shit, but like an hour ago, this took out the the other guy. So like, why is it not working here? And So like, that really adds to the sense that, uh, shit, anything can happen <laughs> in this fight. <laughs> I, well,
0: no, I, I agree. I think that was, because when he punches him as well, Again, I, I, I'm, I, correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, but I'm 99% confident that he punches through his torso, but it's not blood that comes out. It's like black ooze. So they're really enforcing mm. the idea that this is like, this is demonic. Whatever this thing is, he's not human anymore. It's like going back to the Street fire comparison. This is the difference between Goki and Akuma. This is the demon. And it's like there, there is a person piloting, but that person is long gong. You know, this is a monster. And, uh, yeah, you can rip his torso apart, you can inflict all the damage you like, but you're not dealing with a human. He's not going to stop. He's just an absolute monstrosity. An abomination, one might say. And, yeah, the final fight, although, like I say, there's a few points where the suit, you can tell it's kind of limiting his movement and it's not quite fluid, but the effects just make up for it. Like you say, anything goes at this point. You just kind of have to go along with the ride and... Ask questions never, basically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the the way the the way they end the fight, what did you think of it? Um, well, it's funny you say that
0: because I can't remember the ending. <laughs> so I think I, I, I loved the transformation and the actual fight so much that I've actually Block, i've actually forgotten how it ended and i only watched it two nights ago um i remember the fight like he you know because ricky um literally manages to propel him across the room they destroy the room they're in which i think was a kitchen um and, and i
1: ca- in the kitchen there is oh a yes meat grinder. that's right i remember now <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah i literally it sparked in my head just because you know what it was is i was trying to think how did Ricky kill him? Oh, that's right. He didn't technically. Um, yes, they he falls and lands into the massive meat grinder. God knows what they were putting through that thing, because it is literally the size of the man himself. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, I, I thought that um was great. Blood went everywhere. I mean I, th-
1: I think I think it's kind of implied that other prisoners have gone through the meat grinder before.
0: Yeah because um, they even have that uh, is it the assistant warden he like puts another prisoner or, or a guard through it doesn't he and he like offers yeah, yeah. offers the what comes out the other end back to him like there you go now you can have some food and it's like ugh that's grim dude <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's a very bloody scene with the warden but it, it gives you this great shot of Ricky absolutely covered red um, I think that's another great shot like that shot and the uh, opium fields, oh, the poppies burning. Those two, you know, you could put side by side as framed shots, and I'm like, there you go. That's the story of Ricky right there.
1: <laughs> so there was there was so much blood during the scene that uh, the actor actually couldn't wash it off for days that, after. That after doesn't the- surprise took, me. Yeah, yeah, it took it took several days for him to be able to wash it off. And I think the amount of blood comes close to uh, the the lawnmower scene from Braindead.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the amount of blood even blows away anything in the Evil Dead films, to be honest, as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is funny, though, because there is one thing. There is, like, not a negative as such, but it, it did make me chuckle. You have, I think I even wrote it down. Yeah, I did. So there's a there's a moment where Ricky um, either punches him or throws him. I can't remember exactly what he does, but basically the warden goes flying, as I said. And in that sequence, they it's a wire work, which I would have been able to tell anyway. But that particular scene, they don't appear to know how to hide the wire. So they make the very bold decision to just not. <laughs> all of a sudden there's just this quite obvious harness and a wire and i'm like oh and then it's gone but it just made me sort of go i almost feel like that wasn't supposed to be there (laughs) as he just gets yeeted across the room which is funny because um obviously the warden dies the riots going on uh ricky takes the warden's head off and basically tells the prisoners and the guards to stop fighting because it's over. You know, both the wardens are dead. What's the point in continuing the bloodshed? And then he has probably, I'm not going to say the most iconic shot in the film, but it's definitely the one that I think people are the most familiar with. And that is him running at the wall. His hand starts glowing and he punches the wall. that, And the entire wall just shatters. And, you know, this is him free. Um, given a big middle finger to all the authority and all the prisoners are free. And I, I laughed because much like the warden, when he punches the wall, even in like, cause I watched the Hong Kong trailer for the film and the Hong Kong trailer isn't restored in any way. So you've got all of the film grain, you've got all of the, the imperfections. You can still quite clearly see the six uh, wires that are pulling the bricks away from the wall. And I just thought, oh, that's just perfect. That's just the best ending because it just sums up this film so well. You can see the strings, but you don't care. It's like Thunderbirds. <laughs> <laughs> but can you, can you see them in the Hong Kong trailer? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Again, obviously it's a big TV. So if you, if you were watching it on a smaller screen from far away, I don't know if you would. Cause that's one of the things like I've got Jet Li's Fist of Legend and they did a big restoration on Blu-ray a few years ago. And uh, I also used to have it on VHS, but I've never seen the original uh, film print version of Fist of Legend, but the Blu-ray has uh, some deleted cut scenes and they're not restored. And I'll never forget the first time I watched them because not only is the film horrifically degraded, covered in grain, covered in imperfections, but it's yellowed. And I'm pretty sure that's not from age. That's how it looked originally because of the difference in cameras, the difference in screens. And I just thought the wires are that color. And I'm wondering if when this film was originally aired, if that would have actually made up it stopped you from being able to see the wires if they deliberately um did that to try and match with the color grading but i have no idea i know that you know for example when i referenced thunderbirds it was black and white when it was originally broadcast so you wouldn't be able to see the strings by nature of the fact that it was broadcast in black and white but when it became in color
1: obviously the strings stood out yeah no they don't hide this, they don't hide the strings in that scene yeah but that's okay i mean it's the it's the end of the film You've seen it all, right? Oh yeah, exactly. At that time, if you're if you're bothered by that, by that time, I I don't know what to say. <laughs> but, oh no no, it, it didn't bother me. It was more of a conversation. No no I know was, I
0: know. I know. Yeah. It, it was just more one of those things you, where yeah, yeah. I just because that's the that's the thing I find so interesting about watching old films when they get restored when you then watch them and you blow them up is how much of these things that we spot now. Were actually issues when the film was made? are we just seeing things now because we can, or would we
1: have seen these things back then? you know, and also like what you know did the audience you know, did the original audience care about this stuff? yeah, that you know, too I say, yeah yeah because it's so common in Hong Kong action movies that Maybe if they see a couple of wires, it's like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Wires are part of the films, you know. It's, it's well, okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, I think it's the same as if you were to rewatch a mid-2000s film when CGI started to completely take over from practical effects. If you showed that to people that didn't grow up in that time period, they'd probably point and laugh at the CGI in the same way that some people might do that with wire work um, in Hong Kong films but the audience of the day was used to that yeah not everybody thought that the, the CGI was amazing back then but it was in every film it was just part and parcel of watching a film at that point in time
1: yeah, yeah. <clears throat> there's lots of American films where you can clearly see that it's like a stunt person and not the main actor like doing you know such and such, and such uh, shots and that's fine, like like we know they're not gonna put Pierce Brosnan in danger and James Bond because well they need him for the rest of the film. Like, they're not gonna make him like you know jump in the air from a helicopter or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, the question: Yes, why didn't Ricky punch that freaking wall in the beginning? Because I because I wanted. Wondered... This as
0: well. And I think the whole point of the character's journey is the fact that he believes that he deserves to be there in the beginning. And as the film goes on and he sees how corrupt the place is, he realizes that actually, what he, in his mind, I think, what he did, he doesn't deserve to be there. And I think as time goes on, he realizes, and the message is that neither do the other people because it's a private prison, they're not treated well, they're, They don't quite say it, but there is some subtle inferences to the fact that they are essentially slaves because they make a money off of the fact that they send them out as a labor force that doesn't get paid, but they take payment for their services. And I think the film, you know, then they show you that they're running a drug empire. Then they show you that, you know, the worst criminals that should be having the worst sentences are actually the enforcers of the warden's will. So every time ricky thinks that he's done enough they kept showing another reason for why he has to do more and i think by the end of the film he has come around to the way of thinking of giving a middle finger to the authority and being like actually i have the power to break out of here and there's nothing you can do about it so fuck you and he does (laughs) you know technically he should have at least i think it's 10 years where he should still be serving, but
1: actually who are you gonna to send to stop him, you know? That's a very eloquent conclusion. Yeah, yeah, I like it. It's yeah, yeah. great. Yeah, it's all about the journey of the character. Like lots of people when they see the film, they are like they they have trouble getting past that. Like the fact that if the character can do it, why didn't he do it then you know straight away? And they kind of have trouble some some viewers trouble accepting that uh it's not because he could do it that he wanted to do it or that he thought he was entitled to do it
0: yeah it's it's all about the fact that he is quite clearly a good guy and the fact that and, and you even reinforced this um, um earlier when i was saying about why he he let the guy that he thinks is responsible for killing his girlfriend off so easily when he kills him well it's the first time he's killed anybody and he thinks he deserves to be in prison and that's almost i think the same reason why he won't let them remove the bullets that are in his his body is because they're causing him pain it's his penance he's making up for it he's riddled with guilt and the funny thing is to link back to a previous episode and also to say something that uh, I know Mike has said on other podcasts is this is a common issue that I see people have with heroes and I'm using that word loosely um, because you've also just kind of accidentally walked into my Spider-Man episode where Just because you can do something doesn't give you the right to. And with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, Ricky could just walk in, take over the place if he was an asshole. But his own moral code and his own beliefs stop him from doing so. And the fact that he believes that he should be there means that he won't go any further than just killing the worst criminals. He befriends and helps the lesser criminals, the nice guys. That's what I said right at the beginning. He's very upset. That old Ma was killed and they're not treating his death with any dignity. They're just, oh, it's just a prisoner. He's not, you know, he's worth less than a dog. Well, that's not how he sees all human life. And as for some people struggling with that, I think that goes back to the age old argument of is Superman a boring character? Because Ricky's Superman in this film and he's a guy that has no weaknesses. He does have weaknesses, but for the purposes of That you know he could break out at any time. Superman isn't a boring character when he's written correctly, but the whole point of Superman is not whether or not he can do something; it's whether or not he should do something, and does he have the right to do something? And that's the exact same journey and struggle that Ricky has.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So there you go. Sometimes I can sound intelligent. That was great. No, that was (laughs) great. What about you?
1: I exactly what you said. Um, no, it's um, it's always I, I when people ask me why he didn't break out of prison in the beginning of the film, I say it's all it's all about the journey of the character uh, because, like, it's uh, you know, it's it's about him realizing that he shouldn't be there anymore and that the the characters he has befriended don't deserve to be there anymore either um and like in the comic book um sorry in the manga he goes to prison because he wants to extract information from the warden that he needs to then go out of prison and find his brother I think oh okay um, yeah so that's not, obviously that's not in the film. And in the film, I think it's like so. The reason in the manga is practical, while the reason in the film why he stays in prison is thematic. Um, yeah, which makes it more interesting. Um, it
0: does. It it also yeah. changes the tropes because it obviously they kind of hint at the fact that he's there for a reason whenever they interrogate him. But if that was the reason, then I would say it's almost like the man from nowhere trope where he's this random guy who's come there for a reason and he's playing everyone against each other. But I actually agree with you. I think it's better that they didn't
1: do that. So, like, obviously they never made the sequel because the movie... I mean, sorry. Alumni Choi never made the sequel because the movie, like, bombed, like, really, really hard. There is a sequel. It's, like, officially it's not called the story of Ricky 2. But unofficially it is. But officially it's called super powerful man is from 2004 and it's (laughs) it's it's not a movie i recommend Uh, i mean the title alone kind of gave me that impression (laughs) it's look it's made on the shoestring budget and two locations it's like just not worth anyone's time um there you go folks you heard it here first yeah yeah So unlike the story of Ricky, which by the end of it, I was pretty sure when I finished the film that I had seen one of the most unique, exciting, and just batshit crazy films I'd ever seen.
0: No, I'll agree with that. And I I think, to be honest, that's about going to do it here um i think we we had a great uh discussion there we had a wonderful off topic moment which is very much becoming a trademark part of this show you can almost guarantee you that we're going to go off topic and rant about something else and i love the fact i think that, it was
1: interesting though interesting it was. Kind of, kind oh,
0: but, what i love is the fact that almost every guest i've had has done that naturally it's not like i said beforehand hey pick something and go off topic with you know um so i love the fact that having conversations with people can bring out those sorts of conversations where you can't talk about these sorts of films without talking about the broader aspect of films themselves to a degree and i think almost everybody when you're you're talking all of a sudden it's like oh i had a i have a point about this and i want to talk about it and please do you know it's great people love it yeah absolutely it comes with the flow yeah Thanks, Scott. Yeah, that was really good. Before we disappear, is there anything else that you want to say but don't feel like I cut you off?
1: Um actually I have if if people who are listening uh can help me out on one thing. I have one question for hardcore fans of Lam Night Choi. So the man disappeared. Well, he didn't disappear, but he stopped making movies after so after Ricky, he made the cat, and then he stopped making movies, officially. There are rumors that he helped out the year after in 1993 or 94, I'm not sure, on a category three film called Come On Girls uh, that would be like kind of a softcore porno, but we're not sure. I didn't track it down to check, but there are so, there are sources that say he might have de- directed this one as well. So if anyone knows that is the case for sure, please contact me. Uh, I'd love to know if uh, the cat was indeed his last film or not. Uh, Lam Night Choy now lives somewhere in Eastern Europe and does photography. And is, I think, very happy with not making movies anymore. Which kind of is a shame for us because he's given us so many like memorable films. Yeah, But hey, whatever makes him happy. So uh, where can people contact you on Twitter? Yes, on Twitter, my handle is at Exposure, um, And uh, yeah, my DMs are open, so it's easy, pretty easy to contact me.
0: And feel free to uh, tag me as well. Um, obviously, you can find us on Addicts Action. And if you really, really want to and you want to be old school, you can also email. Uh, we have actionaddictspod at gmail.com and i'm very curious to see who will be brave enough to be the first person to send an email maybe if enough people ask me questions i'll have to do like a mini q a at the start of some of these but um yeah i'd be curious to know the answer to that as well because i do actually plan to watch um some of his other films uh like i said uh i'm not even going to pretend that i can remember what they are now but the other two manga ones he did i'm very interested in seventh curse seventh curse was one of them and um yeah. yeah, so
1: Killers Nocturne is a gangster movie that starts like, an, like a like a, giallo, and it has a box, boxing match between a man and a kangaroo. <laughs> what, an actual kangaroo? <laughs> an actual kangaroo. Oh, okay. Not a man in a suit, an actual kangaroo.
0: That sounds painful for the other guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it was. <laughs>
0: Oh, dear. Anyway, that's going to do it for now. Thank you very much, Alex, for joining me on the show. Thanks, God, for having me. No problem. I will catch everybody next time. Tune in because I'm about to tell you what's going to happen next. But until then, guys, I'll see you shortly. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. As I said, this was the longest one we've had since uh, the Spider-Man episode. And as you can tell, Alex and I had a very good time discussing all things, the story of Ricky and a few things in between. Now, if you want to answer his question, you can find his Twitter account linked below in the show notes, you, or to the side, wherever the show notes are in the app of your choice. If you don't follow us on Twitter already, we are at, at addicts action, and obviously he will be tagged in the post I make about this episode, so feel free and go and find him there. If you just want to go and find him direct, it is... One perfect headshot at head exposure, as he said earlier in the show. So, I hope you will go and give him a follow, answer his question if you do know the answer to the question. But, yeah, like I said, his Twitter is worth a follow. If it's not, you will not be disappointed. So, that means, what is next? What are we going to do next week? And, well, to be honest, there are so many episodes that have already been filmed that is getting to the point that I think I might have to do two episodes in a week, at least temporarily. Not every week, but we might have to start putting in... Uh, a couple more episodes because i have gone a bit overboard with the amount of episodes that i have waiting in the wings next week we are going to discuss uh a broader topic it's about a series of films that have had very different receptions so there were two made in the 90s and one recently got made in 2021 and action twitter and myself did not really like it it made money but it wasn't really everybody's cup of tea and uh i can't really do this film's name justice so uh brace yourself if you're listening to headphones but the film of next week is so i hope you're very excited for that one because i have a very special guest next week that is my good friend brendan aka db geek and you might know him from YouTube, you might know him from Twitch, especially if you follow people in the gaming world. His stuff has been blowing up on both of those platforms for a very long time now. I've known him for years and I can't wait for you to hear him. He has a great passion for Mortal Kombat and he and I talk about all of the, all of it. We're not going to be just limiting ourselves to the 2021 film, though that is the majority of the conversation, but We also mentioned the 95 film. I think we briefly mentioned the horrendousness that is Annihilation. And we're going to talk about the video games a fair amount as well. So I hope you're excited for that one. And I'll see you next week. Thank you very much for getting into the action with me. And I will see you in our next one. Take care of yourselves, guys. Stay safe in these trying times. And I will see you in the next one. On the Action Podcast.